Christmas is a time full of warm nostalgia and tender moments. After all, what could be more peaceful than the nativity scene with a choir gently singing "Silent Night, Holy Night"? After two thousand years, it is easy to forget the real birth of Jesus and the world that greeted him. Listening to the sweet carols in the background as we shop, it's easy to forget that this deep-seated animosity toward Jesus Christ still exists in our world today. Why? This is Truth Encounter. Today, our study leader Dave Wurtson begins our program by exposing the modern spin games played in both the political and the entertainment worlds. He exposes how God's moral law in our culture is often set aside or mocked. He also exposes how, in some unexpected places, God's Son Jesus gets cursed, and how does the biblical Jesus respond to this abuse? Who needs this Bethlehem King? Let's join Dave and together discover some answers. I remember when my brother and I were taking a cattle drive, and we ended up down in Galveston. We really didn't go on any midlife crisis cattle drive. We just sat around and walked in the beach and stuff. But one thing I learned about my older brother Don is that he inherited all my dad's genes. And what that means is, in fact, Mary will vouch for this. I mean, any time you drove in the car anywhere with my dad, when it came time for the news to come on, he hit the button and you had to listen to the news. I mean, you never missed a newscast. Anywhere in the planet you were, at the top of the hour, he hit the news button. What I realized is my older brother Don, I mean, we were together for four days, 24 hours a day. We did not miss the news one time. But as we were listening to the newscast, I was just thinking that the world wasn't calm and bright. We were watching all these spin games. And some of you have, you know, you're trying to have a nice nostalgic time, but the world that you live in, the political world you live in, is a world where you just have one person spinning after another. Spin is much worse than what we think it is. We think that what it is is political lying. We think that what spin is, it's just innocent political lying. But it's really something much worse. What spin is, is you create reality to just fit your purposes. You just paint a picture the way you want it to be and then spin that out often enough and long enough so that that becomes the reality that you want to accomplish. And how many of you as believers, if I were to ask you, have gotten upset about those spin games? Well, I got news for you. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, some of the most incredible spin artists that you would have ever met were living in that day, and that was 2,000 years ago. And Jesus wasn't born into a society where there was beautiful Australian snow on the mountains and Julie Andrews was singing over the mountains beautiful melodies. Jesus was actually born into a world that would be filled with all the conflict. You're not going to understand what the Christmas birth is about. You're not going to understand the fact that Jesus was born unless you understand this tremendous hostility against the law of God. Lest you think that this Christmas stuff and this Bible stuff is just innocent, I want you to know that at this Christmas season, wherever you go, you're face-to-face with a deep-seated hostility to the name of Jesus. The battle lines are drawn. Now, some of you, even when I'm talking, there's some of you in this audience right now that's saying, man, Rush got some great material. I can hardly wait till he gets his tongue going this coming weekend. Man, we're going to get those liberals. That's the way some of you are thinking. At this Christmas season, you're saying, this is going to be the year when we vanquish the enemy. 
There's another group of you that are more in a liberal persuasion, and you're going, good night, here I am at church, and we're getting this conservative political stuff again. Let's go dump on the homosexuals, and let's go attack those bad people, and we're going to get the power, and let's go get those bad guys. What I want to share with you today is I'm not going to speak to you like that. But I want you to understand that you need to ask yourself today, who in the world wants the Bethlehem king? And I want you to think really seriously, because most of you have the idea that the Bethlehem king that was born is some sweet little cuddly baby. He's kind of on the par of Pooh Bear. You know, you can take him to bed with you, and, and he'll be nice, warm, and cuddly. And I got news for you. The Savior that I'm going to celebrate his birthday is the most powerful person that I've ever met. The nostalgic prediction that Christ would be born. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Because Matthew is a great storyteller and he's telling the story of history. And in Matthew chapter 2, he doesn't put the prediction of the Bethlehem birth in the mouth of some nice preacher at a nice Christian gathering. But what he does is he puts the prediction of Jesus' birth in the mouth of the enemies of the Messiah. A world a lot like the world that you live in. In fact, even more intense. And the, the lines were even drawn more strongly in some ways. Look at what the chapter begins in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born, verse 1 of Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi, the wise men, came from the east. They came to Jerusalem and they asked Herod, Where is the one who is to be born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now here's spin. You talk about spin. Listen to this spin. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah? That's what the word Christ means. Where is the Messiah to be born? Now I want you to notice that these religious leaders in Jerusalem didn't say, well, you know, Herod, we haven't looked at our Bibles in a long time. We don't really know the Bible too well. And let us go find our parchment scrolls and maybe we can find it somewhere. Maybe we can look at our search engine on our computer. We can find the verse. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see these religious guys are the kind of guys that make straight A's on their comprehensive doctoral exams. When King Herod says, where is Jesus? Where is the Messiah? Where is the Christ to be born? Man, they nailed it. Micah 5.2. And then they quote it. Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for it's written by the prophet. And then they quote right from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Now I want you to notice something about these religious leaders. They're a lot like the religious leaders that we face in our culture today. They knew the Bible cold. They could skillfully quote the Bible. But you know, there's no record, there's no record of any of these priests and scribes, there's no record of them saying to the wise men, we're going to go find the Christ child with you. We want to go, man, if, if the Messiah has been born, we want to join you. We need to find him because he's going to be our salvation. You know why they didn't do that? Because they liked things the way they were. And if you're sitting here today and you like the way your life is, you like the way things are, you like just doing your own thing. You like maintaining your power. That's what these religious leaders are going to do. In fact, as the story develops, these religious leaders are going to become the number one enemies of Jesus. They're going to become the number one people that try to stomp Jesus out. And you know why they wanted to stop him out? Because they understood, join of the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. 
They knew that the Messiah meant that when he arrives, a new king has shown up. And you got to make some decisions about this king because he has power. He has authority. You can't mess with him. He's the living God come in the flesh. And they understood those promises from the Old Testament. And they knew, they knew that if this Messiah had really shown up, it was going to be a total change in their status quo. And they're like a lot of us, like me. Man, I don't want Jesus to really show up. There's a part of me that wants to be able to control my life and do what I want to do and just check on on Jesus every once in a while. And I love the little baby innocent in the manger. I love the cuddly, warm, old little town of Bethlehem and the stillness. And it just reminds me of a nice Adirondack Christmas snowstormy winter evening. I love that. But that's not the story the Bible tells. These are the enemies of Jesus. And the religious leaders don't even walk one step towards Jerusalem. Even worse. What about the political leaders? Some of you are really uptight about the political leaders in our day. And some of you have spent the last eight years saying, oh man, the country's going to the dogs and it's just never been this bad. And look at the political leaders we have. Well, I got news for you. When Jesus was born, King Herod was on the throne. And look what it says. King Herod says to the wise men, you talk about spin. He said to the wise men, I want you to go diligently and search out where the child is. And as soon as you find out where he's been born in Bethlehem, I want you to come and tell me where he is. I want you to come and tell me because I want to come and bow down before him. I'm going to get down on my knees. I'm going to worship him with you. You talk about spin. What did Herod really want to do with the child? Well, all the little children in our audience, you know how this story works. When Herod found out that the baby was born and he didn't find out where he was and the wise men tricked him and they went back another way, Herod just went in and killed all the babies within the age bracket, just wiped out all the babies in Bethlehem that would fit anywhere near where the Messiah would have been in his birth range. You talk about bad news politicians. In fact, history tells us, I've often taught you, as I've told you about King Herod, Miriam was Herod's most precious wife. You can read these incredible love words that he gives to Miriam. And he just loves Miriam. But Miriam, he thought, betrayed him. He thought she was trying to take away his throne. So he killed her. That's the kind of politicians that were ruling when Jesus was born. Herod, before he was dead, before he died, he was very sick. And so what he did is he gathered all of his officials, all of his cabinet, all of his secretary of states, all those equivalent kind of people, stuck him in the Herodian, put his soldiers around the entrance and said, as soon as I die, kill every one of my close associates because I want people to cry for me when I die. Man, how would you like a political ruler like that? That's the King Herod that Matthew's talking about in the early chapters of Matthew. As you open up the real Bible, you begin to read about the Bible, and then you look at what is happening in our culture and the tremendous conflicts that take place over God's law, the great conflicts that come over about spin games and lying and deceit. That's all part of what the Bible already records. In fact, if you turn back to Micah chapter 3, to show you how the original prophet who gave the prophecy, and to put that prophecy in context, turn back to Micah chapter 3, because in Micah chapter 3, you talk about a guy that comes out strongly against the religious leaders and the, and the political leaders of his day. Micah calls them cannibals. I mean, this is hardly Sunday morning nostalgic preaching. Look at how Micah speaks in Micah chapter 3. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Judah. Those would be, listen, you political leaders of Judah. Listen, you rulers, you judges over the house of Israel. Should you not know God's justice? 
Should you not know God's law? In essence, he's saying, you might mock Leviticus. You might mock Exodus. You might mock the Ten Commandments. But leaders in our country should know those laws. That's what he's talking like. Then he says this. You have loved to tear the skin from my people. You love to tear the flesh from their bones. You who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces. You chop them up in little pieces and put them in a pot like flesh for the pot. Man, how many of you ever heard a Sunday morning message on Micah chapter 3? This is a message for the cannibals. That's powerful preaching. Say, Dave, what's Micah talking about? He uses an image, speaking to a bunch of Texans, he says, you ever make Texas chili? He says, what the political leaders of our culture are doing, their wickedness is devouring the people. It's exactly like they took a knife to my people and butchered them like a deer. And then crush their bones to get the bones of the meat. Cut the flesh away from the bone. And then they cut the flesh up in little pieces and threw it into the chili to make Texas chili. He says, that's what you're doing to my people. You say, Dave, what's he talking about? What he's saying is that political leaders, rather than being shepherds of the flock, rather than being careful in courtrooms for there to be justice, rather than being confident that business and careful that business is done according to ethics and everything, they're just thriving on lies and spin and bribery and money. And that's what makes this system work. And Micah just cuts right across all that and says, it's not going to work. What you're doing is you're acting like cannibals. You're devouring the people that you should shepherd like sheep. You should be rulers that tenderly protect the flock that you're responsible for from the wolves. You should be those that are sure that the flock are taken care of. Instead, you're killing the flock and then dicing them up and making Texas chili out of it. You're just cannibals. You're cannibalizing my people. And I want to share with you, some of you have the idea, Dave, I just checked in with God today. You know, this is my time to check in with God. It's Christmas Eve. you got to check in with God. Well, I want to share something with you from it does my heart. You know what? God's checking in with you every single split second of your life. Every one of you in this audience, myself included. You know, the more that I study about the biblical God, the more scary he is in some ways. God is checking in with every one of your bosses, every one of your employees, every one of your kids, every one of you. Some of you have just arrived from the military and it's so great to have you back home. And some of you have just come back from university and it's so great to have you come back home. But you know what? Some of you during these last few months, you say, you know, Dave, the stuff that I was raised with, it just doesn't fit in our world. There's a lot of spin games out there. Who knows what the truth is? I've been involved in the military. What I learned at church about morality, that's just not the way that it works. Everybody, everybody goofs around. Nobody's faithful morally. Everybody breaks those supposed Ten Commandments and nobody thinks anything at all about it. You're living in another planet. And I want to be with it. I want to get with it. Well, I want to challenge you, my brothers and sisters, in your nice, warm, religious, nostalgic upbringing, maybe you were exposed with nice, cuddly Jesus, but I got news for you. The real God of Micah walks right into a courtroom. He walks right into an army camp. He walks right into a church that's not teaching his word, and I got news for you. He can handle it. Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit can really handle those that laugh at his law. You might curse him now, and you might think he doesn't have any power of your life, but I've got news for you. The God of this book is the one that every single one of us, myself included, one day, we will be face to face before him. And don't you think at this Christmas season for one second that he doesn't have the power 
to deal with what's going on. Micah goes on and he pictures the political leaders being cannibals, but he pictures the false prophets as just preaching to their audience what will make them feel good. If you read a little bit further in this passage, he says, as for the prophets, down there in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, as for you prophets who have led my people astray. You say, if they feed you, you proclaim peace. In other words, if you give your preachers enough money and you feed them, then they'll tell you everything is peaceful, everything is good. But if you don't pay them enough, then they attack you and they come down you. And what Micah is describing, he's saying these preachers just determine their message for their own gain, for what they want to get out of it. In other words, when they look at an audience, they ask themselves, how can I speak to this audience? How can I talk to this audience and help them to really respond to me? Help them to be really nice. i never forget several years ago, a man came to me and said, Dave, I want you to know, if, if I become a member of your church, I often notice in the Midlothian Bible Church, budget stays really close. And I want you to know, if I become part of your church, I can really take care of that. And underneath he was saying, I want you to know I've got power, I've got influence. If I become a part of your church, I can really make things good materially. I looked at him and said, sir, to be honest with you, you know, we'd love to have you be part of our church, but not on that basis. Because I could care less about how much money you have. I don't know what anybody gives in our church. I never even look at any of that. There's a good chance that I'll hit you right between the eyes with a two by four from the word of God. And there's going to be no manipulation at all. You know why I talk like that? Because one of the deepest commitments of my life is Micah goes on in this text and says, but I'm a man of the Spirit. He says, God's Spirit moves in my heart. And when God's Spirit moves in my heart, I just powerfully declare that to God's people. I want you to know when Micah preached this message, it really cost Micah. Because who wants to hear it? When Micah was giving this message, Judah was doing pretty good. Samaria was doing pretty good. The Assyrians, under the greatest Assyrian rulers like Zennacherib and Zargon the Great, were up there to the north, but it looked like they could hold them off. And when Micah first started preaching like this, it looked like everything was going to be fine. And it looked like all the treaties with Egypt and treaties with some of the other great world powers in the ancient Near East, it looked like all that political intrigue would keep the Assyrians off the back of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But you know what Micah predicted? Micah predicts in the next few verses, he says, you know what? My people, because of the false prophets and because of the false political leaders, they're going to be taken into captivity. Now that was given probably in about 740 or so, Micah made that prediction. In 722, the Assyrians came down and they took the northern kingdom into captivity. But Hezekiah produced a great moving of the spirit in the southern kingdom and when the Assyrians tried in 701 to take the kingdom of Judah down, the Lord produced a great victory and the Assyrians weren't able to do it. But Micah didn't predict that the southern kingdom would fall to the Assyrians. Micah makes it really clear it's going to be Babel. It's going to be Babylon, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates. That's going to be the city that brings Judah down. And Micah predicted in minute accuracy that the Babylonians would come and they would crunch the false religious prophets. He would crunch the false religious leaders. And he says that God would be the one that actually did that. If you turn to chapter 5, which is our prophecy, that's where chapter 5 begins. And a lot of you might not have understood what it's talking about. You begin chapter 5, it's really weird. He starts out like this. He says, marshal the troops. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. For a siege is against you. They will strike down Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. You say, Dave, what in the world is going on? 
In the ancient world, when a great king came and attacked your country, and he beat your king on the battlefield, what he would do is he would bring your king before him, and he would just strike him. Like the rod was a symbol of the king's power. Just like a shepherd uses his staff to shepherd the sheep. A king would have a rod. It was like the scepter. You see that an English king would have. And he would just strike a king. He would strike the defeated king. And it would be a symbol as you are now totally eating dirt. You have bitten the dust. You say, Dave, what really happened in Israel's history? Well, a king named Zedekiah. He was just a teenager when he became king. He ruled a little bit over 10 years and he decided, I'm not going to pay the Babylonians tribute anymore. So he withdrew the tribute and Nebuchadnezzar the king in 586 came down against the city of Jerusalem. He laid siege to the city. They were cannibalizing one another because the starvation was so great in the city. And then the Babylonian armies crushed down the walls and they tore down the royal palace stone by stone, just the way Micah predicted. They tore down the temple. They just destroyed it. Zedekiah fled like a ton of Israel's king would do. He fled out towards Jericho, down to the wilderness of Judea, trying to get over into the plains of Moab, maybe even down to Petra, where he could get away from the armies of Babylon. But the Babylonian soldiers captured him down by the oasis of Jericho. And second king's clothes with Zedekiah being brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar slays every one of his sons right before him. Then he puts out his eyes. He strikes the shepherd of Israel. That's what it's talking about here. You say, Dave, why in the world did those terrible things happen? Because Israel forgot all about God's moral law. Israel left. They cussed Yahweh. They worshipped other gods. They thought God's moral law didn't apply to them. They thought they could make up their own laws. And the history of Israel shows us that God always wins in the end. And what God did is he took away his protection from Israel. He let Israel experience the brunt of what happened to the world system. And these great armies marched against it. And that's the prophecy that Micah introduces, the great promise of deliverance. Because what happened to Israel, they were taken to Babylon. They were taken into captivity, brothers and sisters. But you know what? When you're crushed, some of you in your own life, you're not with me. You don't buy what I'm telling you. You're riding high, man. You're making a lot of money. You're relatively healthy. Maybe you've just fallen in love or maybe you're changing your loves. I don't have any idea where some of you are. But some of you I know in this audience that look over, you're just really sailing high. You're doing really great. And you're not going to hear what I say. But I want you to remember this Sunday. Because you know what? I've been at this long enough. I know there's going to come a time in a hospital room where your physical health has been broken. I know there's going to be some times in your family life where you just got really tough words that your kids have really done something that's really tough and really bad news and you've come to the end of your rope. Or maybe you're going to have to be dealing with some aging parents and and wrestling with some difficult maneuvering and you just come to some problems in your life that you come to zero point and you say, I thought I was a self-made person and now I can't make. I just cannot make. I've cursed Jesus under my breath, but man, I now realize in this hospital room, I realize in this living room as I sit on this couch, I realize at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm all by myself, you know what, I don't have any more strength. And brothers and sisters, that's the person who needs the Bethlehem king. You see, I don't need the Bethlehem king when I'm doing what I want to do and everything's sitting along. But you know, when my life doesn't fly, when I really realize that inside of my life there's a tiger in my tank... God's moral law says that I shouldn't covet things that God doesn't want me to have. 
God's moral law says that I, that I should tell the truth. I shouldn't bear false witness. That I shouldn't tell evangelistic stories that stretch the truth. That I shouldn't exaggerate. Those are things that almost every single week that I wrestle with is Dave Wurtz. And as long as I think I can handle it, I don't need the Bethlehem kid. But you know what? When I come to zero point and realize, Jesus, you know every single dot and tittle of my life. You know everything inside of me. You know every thought I have. You know every illicit dream I have. Every passion that doesn't line up with you. Jesus, I'm naked before you. That's when I really need the Bethlehem king. You see, the reason that God broke the people of Israel, the people of Judah in half, is he knew the only way he could touch their hearts was to get them in a foreign country, rip out all their human security away from them, and suddenly then maybe they would begin to sing about Yahweh again. And Micah, the great prophet, man, he speaks about the leaders being cannibals. He speaks about the people being taken into captivity. He's a preacher that doesn't just proclaim peace. But you know what? He doesn't just preach judgment. A lot of people misjudge the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets didn't just preach the vengeance of God. What they preached was, don't mess with Yahweh. He can defend his moral law. He's a great political king. If you commit treason against him, he will be able to defend his honor. Jesus can handle himself. And that's why Micah goes on and he doesn't just preach against the terrible situation Israel's in, but he promises now that the, the captivity has come, now that the Israelites are at zero point, Micah says, but there's going to come a new day. He promises the new king is going to come. And that's where this prophecy comes in. Look at verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, his origins are from of old, from ancient times. Interesting enough, this is a weird prophecy because everyone would expect a Davidic king to be born in Jerusalem. And Micah is predicting, like in Micah's day, a son of David would be born in Bethlehem because that had become the capital city. And you're saying, well, Dave, why in the world is Micah predicting that the baby would be born in Bethlehem? Because he's predicting a time when the King David, the Davidic line, is no longer ruling over Jerusalem. They've lost their power. They have to go back to their little hometown that they were born in. And they've lost all their royal notoriety. So the time when this child's going to be born is going to be a time when the Davidic king has lost all political power, all political influence, and his family has moved back to their little town of origin. And Micah made that kind of minute prediction 800 years before Jesus was born, because that's exactly what happened. Joseph and Mary had to make the long trip from Nazareth, and Joseph was from the line of David, and he's become just a carpenter. He has no political power, no palace, no authority over the land. He's just a common laborer. And he comes down to the city of Bethlehem just by a fluke, because the Romans have said that there needs to be a census in the land under Quirinius. And yet we know from the prophecy of Isaiah that the great sovereign Lord is writing this story out so that it all takes place according to his scenario. Now, what did Micah promise this king would do? I want you to see what he promised that this king would do. He says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when the woman who's in labor shall give birth and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. He will stand, this great child born from Bethlehem, this great Davidic king will stand and he will shepherd his flock. He will be the true ruler that, that Micah spoke against, the false rulers. This is going to be a substitute, one that will really stand for justice. He will stand and shepherd his flock. 
in the strength of the Lord Almighty, in the majesty of the name of the Lord God, and they will live securely, and he will be great, and his greatness will reach to the very end of the earth, and he will be their peace. And that's where this prediction of the Davidic king ends. There's a great conflict right here. When I was raised with Jewish kids back in New Jersey, they would raise their hand up in class. They would raise their hand and say, David, that's exactly why I don't believe in the Messiah. He couldn't possibly be Jesus. I'd say, why not? Because Jesus, if you think he was born in Bethlehem, okay, I'll grant you that. I grant you that he was born of, of, of Mary, of a woman, and he was from the right family. But just what Micah predicted, he would shepherd his people and he would bring his people peace. In fact, in the very next verses, it talks about great victories over all the enemies of Israel. And I got news for you. You might know the history of my people, but I do. And Israel has been defeated ever since Jesus came. After this was crucified in 70 AD, the Romans came. They were worse than the Babylonians. The Romans took them and scattered them farther than the Babylonians ever scattered us. And we've been scattered ever since until we got together in our own power and we founded our own state in 1948 and 49. Man, I don't buy this Jesus stuff. The Messiah, he can't be the Messiah because he hasn't brought peace. Good argument. Very good argument. It's an argument you're going to hear. Because the Old Testament prophets did predict that the Messiah, when he came, would be the one that would wreak vengeance against those that had hurt his people. And Jesus went to a cross. In fact, it's one of the reasons why Judas betrayed him, because Jesus just would not become the great conquering general that defeated the Romans. Instead, he let Pilate laugh at him. He let Pilate wash his hands. He let Roman soldiers put nails in his palms and his feet. And then he hung on a cross and he died like any common criminal. Who wants a Messiah like that? And you say, well, Dave, why in the world did Jesus, the great Messiah, why did he do that? I am so thankful that Jesus didn't fulfill Micah's victory prophecies the first time he came. How about you? You say, Dave, you've got to be crazy. We just sang. We want peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I wish the Messiah would have come. I wish he would have thrown those dirty Romans out. That's why I listen to Rush every day. How in the world can you be thankful? It looks like we've been going through 2,000 years of history that doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, it does. You see, Jesus. Remember I said, who needs a Bethlehem king? Herod didn't need a Bethlehem king. He wanted to kill him. Pilate didn't need a Bethlehem king. He did kill him. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, prophets and religious leaders that are just coasting along, doing their own thing, they don't need a Bethlehem king. They're going to kill him every time. But you know, Micah predicted that because of the lying, because of the immorality, because of the deceitfulness, because of the pride, because of the self-sufficiency, that God would bring the Babylonian captivity. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. God, the vengeance, the righteous, holy justice of God was poured out upon his people. But you know what? An amazing thing happened when the little baby was born in Bethlehem. Jesus grew up. And lest you ever think that he doesn't have the power to handle things, have you ever thought about a man that goes to a funeral and the person's been stinking in the grave for three days? And his best friend Lazarus is all bound up in cloth. Have you ever thought about the power of a man that can stand from that grave? And he says, all right, Lazarus, come on out. Come forth. They roll the stone away and Lazarus comes stumbling out. Now, you all have heard that story and it brings great joy to our heart. But I want you to look at that story from a different standpoint. 
You know what I might do at that point? I would get flat on my face. Because as a pastor teacher, I've looked death in the face. I've been in morgues, and I've been in funeral homes more than I ever want to be, over and over again. You know what? Someone that can walk into a morgue and make people live again has incredible power. Incredible, incredible power. Don't you ever think that the baby that was born in Bethlehem can't handle things going on in the modern world? He has incredible power. Just before he went to the cross, he was traveling through Jericho where Zedekiah had his eyes put out and blind Bartimaeus was there upon the run and blind Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, son of David, the Messiah, son of David, have mercy upon me. Messiah, son of David, have mercy upon me. Messiah, son of David, have mercy upon me. And the disciples are saying, would you shut up, you stupid blind beggar? Man, he cried louder. And Jesus heard his cry and Jesus stopped in his tract in Jericho. And he walked over. He said, blind Bartimaeus, what do you want? He said, just let me see. And just before Jesus went to the cross, just before he turned himself over to the religious leaders of his day to be killed, Jesus touched the eyes of blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus could see again. Don't you ever think the baby in a manger is some weak, cuddly person that can't handle life? You say, well, then why didn't he wreak vengeance against his enemies? Why didn't he just cut down all the homosexuals? Why didn't he just cut down all the adulterers? Why didn't he just cut down all the liars? Why didn't he just cut down all the spin games? Because I would have been cut down. And so would have you. Every one of us would have been cut down. Because there's none righteous. No, not one. The book of Isaiah says that it's too small a thing. Way too small a thing. For the great son of David, the great son of God to just bring victory to the sons of Israel. He's too great. He says, I'm going to open up. Yahweh says, it's too small a thing for me just to redeem Israel. I want to redeem the entire planet. And that's why Romans 5.8 tells the real Christmas story. But God commendeth his love toward us, that when we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the wonder of Bethlehem. But God demonstrated his love for us. To be honest with you, when you all screw up, when I have talked to you hour after hour after hour, and you go right ahead and sin like an idiot, there's a part of me that says, God, go ahead and wipe them out. I'm tired of it. They ignore me. They won't talk to me. They ignore my advice. Some of them even laugh at my advice. There's a part of me that says, God, just zap them. And I confess that to you. But oh, I am so thankful my Jesus doesn't do that. My Jesus looks at every single one of you today. You might be sitting out there in this Christmas saying, you know, I don't need Jesus. I'm a self-made person. Who needs this Jesus? Some of you might say, man, I'm going to buy this homosexual thing. I think you can do whatever you want to do, and I've got news for you. If you're wrestling with that kind of gay stuff, I'm not condemning it, but I'm not going to tell you it's okay. Not anymore like I'm going to tell you it's all right for you to steal, it's all right for you to lie, it's all right for you to be prideful. Brothers and sisters, if you're wrestling with that kind of sexual deviation, I want to challenge you with all of my heart. Jesus loves you enough to change you. He can take a homosexual desire, a passionate, illicit, evil desire, and he can wash it water than snow. Because Jesus is the one that takes zero people when they come to zero point and they have no place else to turn. Then they say, I just desperately need this Bethlehem king. 
I want him to come into my life. And when he comes into our life, we become brand new. Whatever your sin is, wrestling with alcoholism, can't get the victory over it. Brothers and sisters, you are not in a room of condemnation. You're not in a room of let's pretend. If you're wrestling with heterosexual passion, if you're wrestling with sticky fingers and you tend to steal when you shouldn't steal or you tend to lie when you know you shouldn't lie, whatever your besetting weakness is, the story of Christmas is that the baby was born just like Micah said he would be born. But he came not to be the great conquering, overpowering general. The first time he came was to provide at least 2,000 years of an opportunity for grace, an opportunity for you in your own heart to come to zero point and say, Jesus, you're not forcing me to my knees, but I want you to know I'm getting down on my knees. I'm worshiping with the wise men, not like Herod, no spin games, not like the false prophet who wouldn't take one step towards Bethlehem. But Lord, I'm going to join the wise men at this Christmas season, and I'm going to walk to Bethlehem, and I'm going to get down on my faith before that Bethlehem baby. And I'm going to celebrate with my family. I'm going to celebrate this great birthday because Jesus is not just the great Yahweh in the flesh, but he has become the one that delivered me, that saved me from my sin. But God commended his love toward us in that way we are yet sinners. Christ died for us. The Christmas story. Who needs a Bethlehem king? I do. So do you.